It is Monday, February 5th, 2024. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, as Arkansas faces a maternal health crisis, officials want to expand access to doulas. This can't be what birth is. This can't be how it should go down. And unfortunately, it does for a lot of women. And so I decided hey, I'm going to be that person that is going to provide that support and that education so that maybe people don't even have to go through what what I went through. Plus, the winter of 76 in Arkansas. Politics and primaries. I don't want anybody in this room to vote for me next Tuesday nor next November unless you want to see the executive branch of the government of the United States of America completely reorganized. And creating a vintage clothing shop that also aims to be a comfortable space for queer people. Libraries are such a huge proponent of community, and I want the library vintage to be an extension of that. All of that after the news from NPR. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families celebrates the 23rd annual Soup Sunday, February 18th at the Rogers Convention Center, taking place from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. This family-friendly fundraiser includes soups and breads, desserts, live music, and auction items. 479-927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Ahead on our show today, Third Spaces. It's that place besides work and home that is a place of comfort and joy. For some, it's a coffee shop or maybe a bar. But for a pair of Fayetteville folks, they want to make their vintage clothing shop to also be a third space. That's in our second half hour. First today... Arkansas ranks worst in the nation for maternal health outcomes. That's according to the Arkansas Department of Health. State health officials are trying to address that problem, and one solution could be expanding access to doulas. Ozarks at Largest Daniel Carruth has more. In 2018, Melissa Udi gave birth to her son, but the experience was not what she expected. Obviously, this this can't be... Um, what birth is, this can't be, you know, um, how how it should go down. And unfortunately, it does, um, you know, for, for a lot of women. Um, and so I decided, hey, I'm going to be that person that um, that is going to provide that support and that education so that maybe people don't even have to go through what, what I went through. She says almost a year after that painful and traumatic first birth, she was still reeling and didn't know where to place that frustration until she found a doula through a social media app for new moms. Um, one of the creators is a doula, um, and she um, she was just someone I, I really looked up to at that time, um, and still. But yeah, I, I kind of... Um, everything she said really resonated with me, and I was like, oh, she's a doula. Like, what is that? And... Um, and yeah, and even I think even at that time, I, I was like, you know, I think Adula is like a midwife or I kind of had also that misconception. Um, but yeah, never really heard the word like growing up or um, or anything. Yeah. Udi is now a certified doula herself, and she says the profession can be a little misunderstood. Doulas are not doctors or clinicians, so they aren't licensed to deliver a baby themselves. Basically, a doula provides um, emotional, physical, um, mental, spiritual 
support um, and information and education to um, to their clients. So to the pregnant woman, to their partner, um, whatever that might look like. If a woman really needs a lot of physical support um, during their experience, or maybe, you know, they just need someone there in the room to hold their hand. Udi explains most of her job is really helping new and expecting moms demystify birth. You know, you always see like water breaking, ah, rush to the hospital and, and like movies and shows and stuff. Um, women in pain, like, you know, screaming, all those things like they think, oh, that's what it's going to be like for those 24 or 48, whatever hours. But really, you know, the, the start of labor you know, it is literally a process that's unfolding and it's going to take however long it takes. And the important thing is that you have those tools and that knowledge to ground you in that in that fact, um, whatever those comforting tools might be. She says most doulas walk clients through everything from pelvic floor exercises and breathing techniques to what to expect from giving birth in a hospital or at home and what complications could arise. And while women are increasingly seeking out doulas, it's still a relatively rare service in places like Arkansas. Julie McWhorter is the chief executive officer of Willow Creek Women's Hospital in Johnson. And she says about 15 to 20 percent of patients at her clinic use a doula. Women, I think historically, who wanted to have a home birth-like experience um, would hire a doula. But it's the the patients we see that have specific things and wishes that they want in their birth plan, that support system that helps them deliver a healthy baby. So I think it's it's definitely getting the media that we need to have that support, but we're definitely not where we need to be in that. And McWhorter says doulas can provide crucial care for rural communities. She says the number of hospitals in the state that deliver babies is low compared to the population. You can imagine if you're pregnant and in labor and some kind of complication, you know, something happens and you have to drive three hours. So having a, a you know, a trained independent, they're, they're not a licensed medical professional, but they are trained to support and help the mom recognize warning signs that, you know, get to the doctor now. And again, postpartum, helping them navigate any kind of um, complication postpartum and get them to care quicker. And this ecosystem is all part of what has been dubbed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as a maternal health crisis. And Arkansas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the United States and the third highest infant mortality rate. That's according to 2022 data from the CDC. Our nation as a whole is worse than any other developed nation in the world. So this really does put a target of needed improvements. Our board has come out with and ACAS published our birthing journey, a number of steps along the path to achieve a good positive health outcome from a pregnancy. And doulas, we think, are an important component of that, particularly for moms who may be isolated, may not have had a child before, may not know how the healthcare system works to help them navigate through the pregnancy and to have a good outcome. That's Joe Thompson with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI. In January, Thompson, on behalf of ACI's Health Policy Board, recommended that the state expand access to doulas to address this crisis. The maternal and infant mortality statistics 
I think are really canaries in the coal mine. They're, they're indicators of a broad system that are failing our families as they go through what should be a, a normal and regular expectation in, in life. Uh, there have been both national and international studies on doulas that consistently show you know, improvements in outcomes such as uh, fewer uh, preterm births, fewer C-sections, uh, healthier outcomes for children. Uh, I think those are important indicators along the healthcare continuum that will lead to reduced maternal mortality, but they themselves are good outcomes that are associated with the availability and accessibility of doulas. Ed, it's that access part that Thompson says will be the biggest barrier. I think the financial roadblock is the is the largest. I mean, most women in Arkansas, um, two-thirds are on a Medicaid plan of some type, so they are low income. They don't have resources in their pocket to be able to pay for doulas uh, independently. And so that's where our board really did believe that the financial support, the needed training programs, and importantly, the availability across the whole state, not just in urban areas where currently they may be more concentrated. At least 12 states provide doula reimbursement through Medicaid. Arkansas is not one of them. And McWhorter says most patients have to cover that cost out of pocket, which can cost anywhere from 800 to several thousand dollars. Typically, the patient pays 100% of the doula. Right now, that's not something that we provide on site. And then more and more insurance companies are um, covering doulas. I know there, there's several companies that are adding that to their plan. And last year, Walmart, the nation's largest employer, expanded its health care coverage to include doula services for workers up to $1,000. Thompson thinks this could be a big step in normalizing the use of doulas. I think clearly when we have across the nation both Medicaid programs in other states and the largest private company in the United States adding doulas to their health benefit, there is evidence behind that to improve maternal care. But one wrinkle in broadening that coverage is regulation. Arkansas doesn't require licensing for doulas. Instead, doulas are certified by professional bodies like Donna, Doulas of North America, or Kappa. Childbirth and Postpartum Professional Association. Here's Melissa Udi again. You know, we are expected to do like continuing education and and those kinds of things. But um, again, there's no really like collective or body like overseeing all of that at this point, Um, which, you know, I think is a good thing. But I think once you kind of start to put that red tape around it, things get um, a lot less accessible. She says putting tight regulations on doulas could hurt the burgeoning industry, which she says has less than 100 doulas working in the state. But Julie McWhorter says some standardization will be necessary. Really, basically, we need to have more training for, we don't have a formal training program. We need to develop curriculum and standardize it and provide those sessions throughout Arkansas, throughout our community. And Joe Thompson says last year the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Northwest received a grant to help train and certify doulas that could begin as early as this year. In the meantime, Melissa Udi says she wants women in Arkansas to know when it comes to giving birth, they do have options. This is a very um, 
collective experience that I feel like we're all trying to live individually, unfortunately, but that there isn't um, any reason for anyone to feel alone. There are spaces out there. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel Carruth produces his stories in the Karen Taha News Studio. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences of Community Health and Research is hosting a week-long training for new doulas at its Springdale office this week. UAMS will be training more than 10 women on how to become doulas. Later on this edition of Ozarks at Large, February 1976 had inflation, concerns about energy shortages, and a general malaise. It has been in some ways a hard year to be a governor because of declining revenues, the fact that we have not been able to do all that we have wanted to do. But I do think that our administration has been one which I mentioned in my inaugural address would be one of common sense. Archives from the Prior Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History take us back to the February of 48 years ago. That's ahead on today's show. This month's Short Talks from the Hill features William Schreckheis, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Arkansas. Schreckheis's research addresses American politics, public policy, law, administrative law, and public administration. In the podcast, he discusses a recent study on civility, gridlock, polarization, and productivity in state legislators. While he suspected there was a link, Schreckheis and his co-authors, including U of A colleague Eric Button, were surprised by the strength of the link. Even when you take into account the extent of party polarization, the population size of the state, the competitiveness of the political parties, all these other things, the degree to which the state lobbyists rate the legislature as being civil is the best predictor of how many bills that legislature passed and whether or not they passed that budget on time and whether or not they passed some kind of important legislation. You can listen to Shrek Heiss wherever you get your podcasts or by going to arkansasresearch.uark.edu, the home of research and economic development news at the University of Arkansas. You can also find Short Talks from the Hill online at kuaf.com. The American Red Cross and the University of Arkansas are teaming up for a winter blood drive through Wednesday. The Red Cross says winter storms canceled blood drives in almost every state where it collects blood, and that has resulted in critically low levels of blood. The winter tip-off blood drive at the University of Arkansas is operating from 10 to 5, Monday through Wednesday this week, in the Union Ballroom on campus. Arkansas is expected to see 10,000 new jobs in 2024, but that could be a drop from the 15,000 jobs that were created last year, according to economist Mervyn Jebaraj. He spoke with Roby Brock from our partner at Talk Business and Politics this weekend. Jebaraj says, despite the job growth, there are concerns. We did have 15,000 jobs, which is on average a good year, but most of that job increase, the net increase came from Northwest Arkansas, Central Arkansas, a little bit from Fort Smith, uh, and you know, surprisingly, we saw Jonesboro not gain any jobs. Hot Springs lost some. Pine Bluff did not uh, gain any jobs either. Jabaraj says the lack of job growth in agriculture is one of the reasons for the lack of job creation in certain regions in the state. Arkansas's state tax revenue is above the forecast and slightly behind the taxes collected at this point last year. The Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration reports the state tax revenue collected for the first seven months of the fiscal year totals more than $4.8 billion. 
That's more than 6% higher than the forecast, but about 2% down from the first seven months of the previous year. DFNA reports the state's surplus sits at about $231 million. Bentonville is now a silver-level bicycle-friendly community. The League of American Bicyclists awarded the designation to the city Friday. The award recognizes Bentonville for a continued commitment for safer streets and for creating transportation and recreational resources for cyclists of all ages. The League of American Bicyclists recognizes five levels of bicycle-friendly communities, from diamond to bronze. One Arkansas city is recognized at a gold level of being bike-friendly. That's Fayetteville. Bentonville's status as a silver-level community makes it the third in the state, joining Rogers, Conway, and the greater Northwest Arkansas region. Bentonville Mayor Stephanie Orman says the designation is further confirmation that cycling is a major part of the Bentonville lifestyle. You just slip out the back, Jack. Making new plans, man. You don't need to be coy, it's Monday, so it's time to go through some archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Our guide, Randy Dixon. Welcome back. Thanks, Kyle. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Now, last week we opened with a piece about January 75, and you started with Carpenters, who were number one at the time. <laughs> yes. We just heard Paul Simon. He was number one in February of 76, okay. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. So I... I, in anticipation for our conversation, because I knew we were going to be talking about February 76, you and I cut differently what's number one when. Oh. This was the number first number one song of February. February. But I would argue that the last song of January, which was like January 30th, was actually the f- number one song when and February And what was started. that? It was Love Roller Coaster by the Ohio Players. Ooh, so now I was kind I'll of take hoping that, that you would be coming in with that. But oh, man. Paul Simon's fine. Paul Simon's fine. Why don't we close with it? You have a deal. Okay. All right. So, uh, February 76. Yeah, let's see. Gerald Ford is in the White House. Yep. It was the beginning of a bicentennial year. Yes, it was. We are going to talk about that That's here, okay. though. That's uh, they weren't worrying about that till it got closer to summer. And uh, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, were underway in Innsbruck, That's Austria. Right. right. So um, it was a busy year, busy month, uh, busy for politics, too. It was a presidential election year. So primaries were going on in February. Yes, yes, uh, just like they are now. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. yeah. But they were a little more exciting then. Yes. Um, so let's talk politics All right. at first. Um, this uh, is a young man that you will hear a lot more about in the decades to come. <laughs> uh-huh. He was a young law professor up here at the U of A, had run for Congress, was beaten by John Paul Hammerschmidt two years before, so he is running for attorney general statewide position, and this is a young Bill Clinton making an announcement. Now, one thing I need to point out, a couple of these sound clips have a little funky sound to them, and, you know, that's going to happen when you have, it's called magnetic stripe, Mm. and it's just like a tape recorder, basically on the side of a piece of film, and sometimes that can get damaged over time, and you hear a little bleed over yeah. uh, 
on a couple of these, and this one we're about to hear is the worst one, and you can still understand what he's saying, but hopefully we can figure out a way to clean this up for in the future. But here's Bill Clinton announcing for Arkansas Attorney General. The Attorney General is our state's lawyer and the guardian of our people's interest as well. It's very important that the right kind of person be elected Attorney General. As a lawyer and teacher, I've tried to show the devotion to excellence, hard work, and independent thought that we need in the Attorney General's office. I've represented clients in 15 counties on a wide variety of legal matters, contract actions, divorces, property disputes, public employee termination hearings, disability and black lung cases, criminal cases, and many more. What is he, about 30 at that point? He was a youngster. Yeah, and he was busy. He wasn't just running for AG. No, he was also... um, he ended up being unopposed, so he had a little free time on his hands. <laughs> so he decided to be the regional campaign manager for Jimmy Carter running for president. So Carter made some visits here. He and uh, Clinton were really good friends for a while until the the Cuban refugee thing right. kind of blew up, and there were some hard feelings there. Uh but here's a clip from uh, Jimmy Carter when he was visiting Arkansas. I don't want anybody in this room to vote for me next Tuesday nor next November unless you want to see the executive branch of the government of the United States of America completely reorganized and made efficient, economical, purposeful, and manageable for a change. If I'm elected, I'm going to do it. Of course, Jimmy Carter wins the nomination, wins the general election. I was trying right. to think who else was seeking the Democratic nomination in 76. I know Scoop Jackson, who is a senator from Washington, I believe. Yes, and someone we're going to hear from okay. here in a few, George Wallace. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he's coming up. Right, okay. But um, I wanted to throw this in. I thought this was interesting. You know, we always talked about Bill Clinton having, you know, the support of Hollywood mm-hmm. and uh, actors and directors and movie moguls. But... Um, so did Carter, mm-hmm. and he brought in tow when he came in Arkansas, at, and some people may not know who this is, but George Pappard at the time was a huge actor, best known for the well, A-Team Well, later. later, right. I mean, yeah. at this point— He was a big movie star. Yeah, he had been in um, old well, Breakfast at Tiffany's. With, yeah, and um, The Blue Max. right. And uh, several others. Yeah. So here's George Papard talking about, well, he actually talks about actors and them being involved in politics. Well, I don't expect anyone to vote as I say because I'm an actor, but I am a delegate to the National Convention. I'm an American citizen and I'm concerned about our country. And as a citizen, as a delegate to the Democratic Convention, I feel on that basis I have a right to say as I believe. This being the primary season, uh, KTV also wanted to be fair. Mm-hmm. And um, Fred DeBryan, who was the anchorman at the time at Channel 7, went to Washington to interview President Ford, who was facing his own primary. And this was the day of the Michigan primary, which course was Ford's home Home state state, yeah Yeah. so he talks to him about how well he ought to do president by what margin do you feel you have to win today in Michigan to 
to make this primary significant? I'm not going to pick a figure because uh, then if you aren't right on the nose, it makes you look bad. I think we'll win in Michigan. I think we'll have a good margin. Uh, I think it will restore the momentum that we had following New Hampshire, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, Florida, Wisconsin, and Illinois. We'll win, and I think we'll also win in Maryland. And the two combined will give us, uh, again, the kind of momentum that'll give us a victory in Kansas City. I, I, as soon as I heard you know, this began, I knew how President Ford was going to answer this. Like, I'm not going to give you a number. Exactly. And he, yeah. Yeah. Secondly, a Little Rock anchor talked with the incumbent president. Yeah. The day of the Michigan primary. Yeah. I can't imagine that happening again. I know. I know. It was uh, it was great times for TV then. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he had pardoned Nixon. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. he wasn't a strong candidate. Right. Evidenced by the general election. When he lost to Carter. When he lost, yeah. Now you mentioned George Wallace. Yeah. Um, you know, he ran for president four times. Mm-hmm. Um, in, carried Arkansas one time. Well, yeah, in 68. Yeah. He carried Arkansas as an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ran uh, here in 76. He was running for the fourth time, uh, this time as a Democrat. And this is uh, Wallace on his stop in Little Rock. I, I think he can root it out because the Democratic Party is going to rule out in necessity for having a third party because... I've talked with the governors, I've talked with party leaders, and many of them are not for me. But uh, as Mr. Governor Noel of Rhode Island said, we must move closer to the positions George Wallace has taken over the years. He said that a year ago. And since he said that, everybody's moved closer to those positions and taken them. He had not been shot yet, right? No, he had. Oh, he had. So he was in a wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair. Okay. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and speaking of segregationists, yes, <laughs> and which governors, George Wallace was, yes, yes he was uh, Alabama governor, yeah. uh, staunch segregationist. Well, Arkansas had its own, <laughs> well, or, more than one, but yes. yeah, but Orville Faubus, yes. and he was out of politics at this point. He would run occasionally for governor unsuccessfully, but he was still, you know, he dabbled in politics, and whenever. Uh, especially KTV wanted, uh, I guess, expert analysis, um, then they would occasionally go to Faubus, mm-hmm. who at the time was living in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, it was always described as a mansion. Yeah, the, Hunts- the, the, yeah, the Faubus mansion. Yes. Uh, but here is Faubus talking about the current strength of the two-party system. Right now throughout the nation, and in this state, uh, no party any longer can claim a majority of the citizens at party loyalty. In other words, the block of citizens who classify themselves as independents is much larger than the block who classify themselves as Republicans or who classify themselves as Democrats. And uh, in this state and in some other states, you're going to see some people cut loose and avoid the primaries and all the difficulties and campaigning you have to go through and run as an independent in the general election and give somebody some trouble and maybe win. 
So going back to the the Faubus clip, I, I kind of wanted a little more explanation and um, I guess some sort of perspective on what he was talking about. And I went to our expert, um, the executive director of the Pryor Center, John Davis, who's also uh, has a PhD in political science. So I wanted him to kind of uh, expand on Faubus's analysis and compare it to today. But he's speaking to a shift uh, during the era in the, the mid 20th century of split ticket voting. And it was certainly on the rise up until the last 20 or so years. And what that is, is when you vote for, say, a Republican at the top of the ticket for president, maybe a, a Ronald Reagan in 80 or 84, but then you still vote for your Democratic senators who are incumbents who you're familiar with. And that's ticket splitting. I'm not voting for straight Repo Republicans. I'm not voting for straight Democrats. That was on the rise for several decades. Uh, it is now in decline. Today, there are, as, as Faubus rightly says, there are more of us on average that say we're independent than says we're Democratic or Republican. Uh, the problem is the follow-up question is, well, okay, uh, but and this is just an example. Let's say we ask those people in the last three election cycles, have you voted? And if they say yes, you could then ask, did you favor one party or the other? And the person might say, well, yeah, I vote Republican every time or Democrat every time. The independent label seems very uniquely American to me. This idea that we're sort of free agents, we're, we're free from the, uh, the negative labels of partisanship. We look at all the facts, we make an objective decision on election day. The reality is uh, we're all quite partisan. Uh, we're all quite aligned with one party or the other. Um, and the remaining few, uh, we might call them true independent voters, are less likely to participate uh, are less civically engaged on average. And a lot of studies would result uh, or suggest that, um, that those are the folks who probably aren't following politics that closely. Our governor at the time was my other boss, David Pryor. <laughs> David yes. Pryor. And this was his first year in office. He had just completed his first year in January. So he was uh, talking about that, uh, you know, reflecting on that first year. Joy very much this year in office serving the people of our state. It has been in some ways a hard year to be a governor because of declining revenues, the fact that we have not been able to do all that we have wanted to do. But I do think that our administration has been one which I mentioned in my inaugural address would be one of common sense. And I think we've accomplished this and we need some more time to accomplish it further. Second, I think it has been an administration that has attempted in every conceivable way possible to humanize government, to get away, let's say, from program-type government and get into the service areas of representative democracy to the very best of our ability. I found this in the archives from that month, and this is uh, at the time when it was the interview was shot, the story was shot, you wouldn't have thought much about this person this is what's great about the archives is you can go back and in hindsight mm -hmm. think man i'm glad we have that but this is um say the title first the the, the position oh um he's head of the arkansas industrial development commission <whistles> and he was appointed by democrat david Pryor. okay this man frank white 
ends up four years later running against Bill Clinton as a Republican and beats him. Right. So here is Frank White as head of the AIDC, and he's talking about education and the problem of young people, I guess, getting their education here but not staying. We graduate annually about 25,000 people from high school, college, junior college, and Votech schools. As I said last year, we create new jobs. What happened to the other 20,000 young people? Many, as we have experienced the past 20 years, had to leave the state of Arkansas, a figure that has risen as high as 42% of the high school and college graduates leaving the state in order to find a job. When we talk about economics, the state of Arkansas spends $376 million a year on education. 65% of all the general revenues in the state of Arkansas are committed to education. And how can we sit by and see 42% of the young people in this state that we have educated, that are our most valuable resource, have to look to other areas in order to find work? I don't think it was KETV, but somebody in the late 70s, maybe it was even as late as 1980, was doing a series called Brain Drain about Arkansas and how many diplomas were leaving the state. That's right. It was a big concern. It was. It was. Um, and still is to yes. a certain yes. extent. But I, I, I think the, the problem has, has improved yeah. somewhat. Uh, let's move on. All right. To, well, it still involves politics, but we throw in some food here. Okay. Uh, you know, rice is, and I didn't realize this, but it's the most popular grain in the world, mm-hmm. which makes sense. But it's also the leading agricultural product in the state. Yeah. And Arkansas produces 40% of the rice that's consumed in the U.S. I didn't realize that. That's that's a lot. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Uh, so in February of 1976, uh, KTV talked to Arkansas's senior senator at the time, John McClellan, and he was looking at wanting to expand um, Arkansas's rice production outside of the U.S. We can produce more rice in this country than we are producing. Now, if we can develop a market for it abroad, and we are doing that, that means more employment, that means more production, more income, more revenues for our people. And the world, we've got a lot of hungry people in this world, millions and millions of people who, if they had rice, could survive, and rice is their principal diet. Now, the problem, of course, is how how can they pay for it? But uh, hopefully... Uh, We'll be able to participate in that world market, increase our participation in it, and hopefully the conditions will improve to where more people who need it and who are suffering and hungry can have food, can have rice, than have it now. So, uh, lastly, Oakland in February is always in big swing, mm-hmm. and the Sella family for generations since, I believe, 1916, has owned Oaklawn Racetrack and Jockey Club and now Casino. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here uh, in February of 76, Charles Sella, who was the 
owner at the time, uh, just talks about the upcoming season, but I was interested in hearing about their payroll and who they were employing there. Uh, Dave, this year we will have an all-time record. We will employ about 1,200 people uh, at a payroll of over a million and a half dollars, which is rather staggering when you consider that uh, it's a 50-day period. And how many of these people are local Hot Springs area people, and how many come in just for the meeting? Well over 80% uh, of our total employment are, are Kansans, and I would say uh, about 50% of that total are from Hot Springs and surrounding counties. All right, February 1976. I'm glad I'm not there, but I was glad to visit for a little bit. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, any idea what we'll talk about next week? I got some stuff in the works. But, okay. Uh, All right. We I won't want to commit. You're like Gerald Ford with the Michigan number. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to say for sure. I'm not going to jinx it. All right, but let's go out with what was the number one song when January '76 turned to February? Love uh, roller coaster. Ohio players. Thank you, Randy Dixon. Thank you. KUAS Community Engagement Manager Jasper Logan here with another round of what's happening this week in the Ozarks, February 5th through the 11th. First up is Best Friends Pet Resource Center is having a Paws of Love Valentine's Pet Food Drive. All you got to do is donate any brand of canned or dry cat or dog food during the open hours of 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you've been looking for a way to give back to our furry friends in the community, this is your opportunity. Next is every first Monday of the month from 5.30 to 7 p.m., Circle of Life Hospice is having a grief support group for individuals who have lost a friend, loved one, or family member. So if you've been in need of this kind of support, it sounds like a great opportunity to start the process of healing. On Wednesday, February 7th, OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute will offer a yoga for healthy living class from 9 a.m. to 10.15 a.m. The class will be planned and based around participants' health history and physical condition. They'll also emphasize mindful movement, deep stretches, balancing, and breathing. If you're like me and love yoga, this is a great opportunity to get connected with your mind, your body, and some peace. Uh, lastly, there is an intro to vegetable gardening class at the Botanical Gardens, Sunday, February 11th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Perfect class if you're like me and you've been wanting to grow your own food. This is our chance and our opportunity to finally do that, guys. Uh, this was just a small snapshot into our community calendar. There are tons of things constantly being added. So make sure you stay up to date with what's going on by heading over to KUAF.com community calendar. Again, KUAF.com slash community calendar. And if you have something important coming up and you want to get the word out about it, go ahead and add it onto our community calendar. All you got to do is go to KUAF.com slash community calendar. This is Ozarks at Large. Meg Carp and Sav Leonard are two Fayetteville residents who love to swap clothes. They recently started a project called Library Vintage, a rental and retail pop-up shop for vintage clothing. It's soon going to have its own storefront. Ozarks at Large's Sophia Narani spoke with Meg about how Library Vintage began, how it works, and the motivations behind it. 
Meg Karp graduated from the University of Arkansas in 2019, identifies as non-binary, and uses they-them pronouns. They say they met Sav while working at another small business in Fayetteville. And we started doing these clothing swaps with all of our coworkers, And then by one way or another, we both were no longer at that job and went to another job where we both worked at. <laughs> we just have followed each other around and started another clothing swap and just realized how much we love to trade clothes. And I am really big on local art and community. And I think from COVID, we lost a lot of our really potent third spaces. And there are also most third spaces you have to, you know, pay money for a, a coffee or a drink or whatever. Um, and you never know who you're going to bump shoulders into. So I really wanted to have a third space that was really safe for the queer community, um, a community that I'm a, I'm a part of. With those ideas in mind, Sav and Meg worked to establish the library vintage. It began as a pop-up store with no physical location, but Meg says that wasn't their original plan. I actually had no intention of doing pop-ups. I was delusional and said, I have to have a retail store or it won't work. Um, so I wasn't even planning on doing pop-ups at all. And Vaughn and Jordan had reached out to me to do a pop-up, and I just went for it. And I got so much good feedback. Uh, it was insane. The Hopout DIY has been the biggest champion of all that. It was very much so thrown together. But I it's really encouraging that people are coming behind this idea because I can't do it without other people. Like, it doesn't work if the community isn't supporting it. But how does it work? Well, in one way, it's just a regular vintage resale store. But that isn't the main draw. The Library Vintage is a normal, regular retail store. So you could come in at any point and shop around, buy your items. But additionally, I also sell subscriptions. Um, I have a $20 a month subscription where you can check out one item at a time, much like a library. Um, take it home, wear it as much as you want, and then bring it back unlaundered. And you can return it and replace it in unlimited amount of times during the month. It also doesn't matter how much an item is or how much it costs. Like, if you pay for a $20 membership, you have access to everything that's rentable as long as you want it. There are no late fees. There's kind of a loose 60-day rental just to kind of... People love limits, and that's a nice, nice enough limit to be able to keep something and then remember to return it. And then I also have a $50 membership where you can check out five items at a time. Similar to a public library, you can rent out vintage pieces from the store and bring them back after 60 days. The concept created the name Library Vintage. Meg says that they hope the space will foster a safe, affirming community for anyone that walks through the door. A public library is the most inclusive space in the world, and I wanted a space where everyone could have a part. There's no like barrier to entry for any person. Like You don't have to be a member to come in and shop. Um, I also have craft nights that will carry over into the library vintage, and those are always free. Libraries are such a huge proponent of community, and I want the library vintage to be an extension of that. I want to have the biggest collection of local designers in the state. I pretty much want it to be the 
coolest and most comfortable place to come and hang out. And I want everyone who walks in the door to feel like they have the freedom to explore their own identities without any pressure. That's kind of the nice thing about the rental system is clothing is so personal and clothing is really personal for me when I um, came out as queer and experimenting with clothing uh, is a really important way to express yourself and check in with your own identity. And I'm gender fluid. It, it changes all the time. And I want a space where everyone can come in and do that. The Library Vintage will also be selling and renting gender-affirming clothing, like chest binders. Gender-affirming clothes are <laughs> probably the most deeply personal um, article of clothing you could ever buy. And you can only buy them online. And, you know, fit of binding. And I, I don't personally bind myself, but I have a lot of friends who do. And the, the fit is so specific to people. Um, and so having an opportunity to check out binders. I'd also love to carry other affirming clothes. It just, binders are the easiest one to start with, especially when it, when it comes to renting out. Meg says they hope to open Library Vintage's new storefront by the beginning of March at 48 East Township Street in Fayetteville. To find out more about subscriptions or to stay updated on the opening, you can visit the Library Vintage website at thelibraryvintage.com or their Instagram at the Library Vintage. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. This is Ozarks at Large. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. Now I give up. Arkansas' Jimmy McCracklin was born James David Walker on August 13, 1921, in Helena in Phillips County. He took the name McCracklin from his stepfather, Barry, who adopted him. A pianist, organist, and vocalist, and also an accomplished boxer, Jimmy McCracklin made his name as a songwriter, as well as a performer over a period of more than a half century. What kind of life would we have? The McCracklin family moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where Jimmy took lessons from blues pianist Walter Davis. Jimmy McCracklin joined the U.S. Navy and later settled in coastal Richmond, California. There, at his sister-in-law's club Savoy, McCracklin was part of the club's house band, backing national performers such as Charles Brown. Jimmy McCracklin formed his own band, the Blues Blasters, in 1946 and kept the band name for decades. The year before, he cut his first single, and McCracklin would record for several local and regional labels in Los Angeles and Oakland, California for more than a decade. Over his long career, McCracklin recorded for an array of labels across the United States, from Mercury, Chess, Stax, and Imperial, down to lesser known such as Irma and Minute Records. That's the wall.
1957 and 1958, Jimmy McCracklin's first national breakthrough came with his R&B and pop hit, The Walk, complete with an appearance on TV's American Bandstand. Soon, the Phillips County native came to embody the so-called West Coast blues style, with its faster tempos and emphasis on keyboards, not unlike that simply of straight R&B. In 1962, Jimmy McCracklin released his first solo album. Tramp. What you call me? Tramp. You, didn't. you don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I'll tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm a left. In 1967, Jimmy McCracklin's song Tramp, written for and with bluesman Lowell Fulson, became a hit duet for Otis Redding and Carla Thomas on Memphis, Tennessee's Stax label. McCracklin never recorded a version of his unique and most popular and lucrative songwriting credit. Tramp has been recorded by such names as Buddy Guy, ZZ Top, and Steve Miller, and sampled by Salt and Peppa, Slick Rick, EPMD, Prince, and De La Soul. You know what, Otis? I don't care what you say, you're still a tramp. That's right. You haven't even got a fat bankroll in your pocket. You probably haven't even got 25 cents. I got six Cadillacs, five Lincoln, four gold, six Mercury, three T-Bucks, Mustang, ooh, I'm a lover. Uh, uh, uh. by me. Other Jimmy McCracklin songs, from The Walk, to The Drag, to The Wobble, to The Georgia Slop, Think, Just Got to Know, My Answer, Lie to Me, and Beyond, also caught on with other blues, rock, and R&B acts. Even as he came to be known and embraced, especially in Oakland, California, as a practitioner of the West Coast blues, the songs and music of Helena's Jimmy McCracklin continue to resonate far beyond the West Coast of the United States. Arkansas' Jimmy McCracklin of Helena in Phillips County in East Arkansas died December 20, 2012, in San Pablo, California. Jimmy McCracklin was 91. Here in its entirety is Arkansas' Jimmy McCracklin of Helena in Phillips County with his song, Think. Now I give up My friends I know And in return You give up yours Before we think What would we do later on Just in case we both are wrong I could give up my woman You could give up your man But it don't make sense to Take the chance Before we think What would we do later on What kind of life Just in case we both were wrong
world is a gamble And we know that's true But why gamble on me, Anna? Why should I own you? Before we think What would we do later on? What kind of life would we have? Just in case we both were wrong Arkansas' Jimmy McCracklin of Helena and Phillips County with Think. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansas since 1998. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Daniel Carruth, Randy Dixon, Sophia Norani, and Stephen Cook. Additional help today from our pals at Little Rock Public Radio. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. If you ever miss an edition of our show, you can find our back catalog at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. You'll also find a link to subscribe to our free newsletter, the podcast version of our show, and so much more. Watch the Grammys last night? I did. I did, too. It was really... Um, it was really fun to see probably my favorite performance. I I, I missed the Joni Mitchell performance, mm-hmm. so caveat there. Yeah. The, my favorite one that I did see was Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs playing oh, yeah. together. And just how much reverence and like just joy he had on stage watching her perform. And when the crowd comes in, like on that very first little bit of that, you know, that guitar lick, it was just like, yeah, it's really cool to see her just really enjoy being up there. Oh, and she looked great and sounded great. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um couple of notes, the Grammy for Best Children's Album went to Andres123. Nice. They were just at the Jones Center. Yes, like, they were. Last month. I interviewed them before the previous Grammys yeah. because they were nominated, did not win that year. Glad they got to win this year. Uh, Allison Russell, who's been in Fayetteville more than once, a couple uh-huh. times with the Roots Festival with Birds of Chicago. She won a couple of Grammys last night. I saw War and Treaty. They were nominated for Best New Artist. Yep. They were, uh, you know, here. For Roots Festival and just a lot of, uh, um, well, I can't remember her name now, who won for Best uh, Non-Traditional Jazz Album, Hmm. Samara Joy. Yeah. She was at Walton Art Center, like, within the last two or three years. Yeah. Fun to see all those folks here. Sure was. All right. More tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Theater Squared presents What the Constitution Means to Me, Heidi Schreck's reimagining of how this living document impacted four generations of women and what it means for the future of America. A New York Times critic's pick and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. This play is on stage through March 3rd, 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Resources available to support your mental health. More at drkathleenwong.com.